What up, dishheads? <laughs> Haven't done that before. Well, anyway, hello. Welcome to the Dishcast. It's, it's me again from Provincetown again. And I'm going to talk a little bit about why, because I have contractors coming at me from both ends. And right now, of course, as always happens, someone is. There's a delay in the flooring, which means I have to wait another week, which means I'm not going to be able to get back, I don't think, to Provincetown until Christ- till not Christmas, till December, which is a mixed news. I mean, it's kind of nice being here when it's all very, very quiet, and it's beautiful. It is beautiful, a little lonely. I wish my dog was still here because that would make it all bearable, but it's, it's still, there's something about being at the behest of others with absolutely no control over what they do. And the way contractors come into your lives and, and never really tell you anything and, and you can't really communicate and don't really, don't really ask you what you want ever. And anyway, so I'm, and you're just so grateful for anything to get done that you just tolerate everything and let it go. But I'm all right. I'm fine. I cannot complain. I live in this beautiful place in the free world and there are many, many, many other people in the world right now living under incredibly worse situations. So I'll shut the fuck up at this point and introduce our guest, who is Pamela Paul. We wanted to have on for quite a while. And she's a, a journalist and currently a columnist at the New York Times, where you may be reading her on a regular basis. She, for nine years, was a really brilliant editor of the New York Times Book Review which stayed sane throughout the madness of the New York Times. And she also pioneered, actually, and hosted a weekly podcast. She's now a columnist for the opinion section of the Times. She writes about a whole bunch of different things, culture, ideas, society, language, politics. And she's the author of eight books, most recently, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. Among those 100 Things, My Soul Anyway, (laughs) coming up, just because I'm supposed to do this, David Leonhardt is coming on. God, we've had a really heavy New York Times brigade in here recently. Kat Bohannon on her new book, Eve, How the Female Body Drove 200 Million Years of Human Evolution. My old good friend John B. Judas and writer Shera on their new book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? And Matthew Crawford, the wonderful, interesting, and deep author of Shop Class as Soulcraft, who's trying to get us back to understanding what it means to be human. But today, thrilled to have Pamela. Thank you so much. Is it Pamela or is it, do you go by Pam or Pamela? I go by Pamela. Good. Is there a reason for that? (laughs) I went by Pam as a child and then I switched over. So the only people who call me Pam are my brothers and my parents. And then a few childhood friends sort of have their grandfathered in. So they're... The only person who ever called me Andy was my dad. Yeah. Um, And it, 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 it also kind of declined over the years. Now, I I, I don't know why. I, I, I guess, Pam, you sort of don't want to be sort of associated with something that you put on saucepans. And, and, no, and no. And Pam is like a cheerleader name. And also, as was made clear to me in junior high, what's now called middle school, if you say Pam Paul really fast, it sounds like pimple. <laughs> and so, but but my dad called me Pammy and he was the only one to do that. And anytime anyone else tries something like that, it feels incredibly awkward for all kinds of it's reasons. It's a sweet, sweet name though, Pammy, for, for dad. Tell me, Pamela, though, since you mentioned your dad, tell me where you... Yeah were born and where you grew up. 
So I am New York adjacent. I grew up on Long Island and my parents divorced when I was quite young, three or four. And the fact that they don't have a specific date, I feel like is a very 70s thing. Like, oh, we don't know how old you were. But uh, they split up and my dad moved into the city. So I spent weekends in the city and, and then went to school on Long Island. Huh. And what did your parents do? My mother was a copywriter in advertising. She like essentially had the same trajectory, although it didn't go quite as 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 far as Peggy on Mad Men. Like she became a copywriter in New York City that same year. And my father was one of your favorite kind of people, a construction contractor. <laughs> oh well, now yeah. we're off to the races. Just- Having a dad as a contractor, so you you know this from the inside out. Then, so 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 my experience is that they don't tell you anything. They they don't really communicate very well. They show up, they don't apologize, and they never explain. And their understanding of time and space seems to be on a different plane than every other normal person. Am I completely? Have I just had a bad experience? Well, I will say this. First of all, my dad was mostly a commercial contractor, although I made the mistake, which one should never make, of doing business with family. And he did work on my house in Harlem while I was living in the house with three small children. And that was that was not a that was not a wise move on my part. But, you know, my brothers and I used to joke that he, he was just constantly on the phone with various subcontractors and, and with his supervisor. And if we were in the middle of a conversation, it didn't matter how like deep or personal it was. And Hank, his supervisor, kind of his, his man on the ground called in the other line, he would say, I got Hank on the other line, I got to go. And he would just hang up. And so now, you know, my brothers and I, when we're talking on the phone, if we just want to go, we say, I got Hank on the line and just hang up. But you know that. That's smart because if you don't pick up the phone, then they will never call you back. You have to. The the trick is never ever rely upon them to do anything. If you if and if they are there in front of you, seize the day, and and get shit done because they they really kind of don't want to do things or put up barriers every to everything you possibly want to do. I think COVID made things a lot worse, like every, everywhere else. Lots of supply chains were screwed up, and so you have delays and this, that, and the other. Um, and also, there aren't enough people to do it, which you'll probably hear from your future guest, Matthew Crawford. I mean, there just are not enough handymen. There are not enough you know, carpenters, plumbers, people who can actually make things happen with their hands. Yeah, especially when you get out to places where I'm at, which is the very end of the world here. Where people really do, it's it, it they're, they're, there's it's 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 a it's a it's a seller's market, as it were. I mean, the people can can just dictate really when how they do work, and you're lucky to get any at all. So, what did your mom? Did you live with your mom in the week and visit your father on the weekends? Is that how it yeah, worked? Yeah, that's exactly right. And then we had a big mishmash of a family because both of them were in relationships and eventually married other people. I had I grew up with seven brothers altogether between stepbrothers and biological brothers. Any sisters? No, no, no. Well, I was that's the interesting. Girl. Yeah. What's that like being a girl among brothers? It must that must that must have shaped you quite a lot. I mean, I I liked it. I got beaten up a lot. I you know, they, there's they a were physically point. physically rough with you. 
<clears throat> yeah, I mean, we were all incredibly rough. But then, of course, there was a period where I could wrestle them to the ground. And then that rapidly switched at a certain age. And then I, you know, didn't want to wrestle so much anymore. But no, it was fun. I, I wish I'd had a sister. I'd always wanted one. But I, you know, it was it there was an uneven number. And so the hardest thing about it is that there would be a constant pair up of brothers. If, if for example, we went skiing or, you know, and so we didn't go on vacation as a family because the family was too fragmented, but a portion of the family would go skiing and would pair up the boys in, in each in a room that they shared. And I had the privilege of being in my own room, which I took as a massive insult because I would hear them talking into the night and, you know, tell them to shut up, shut up. But then part of me was like, what are you guys saying? I can't hear, you know, from my my door next door. So it 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 felt I definitely felt a little bit left out. I was yeah. conscious of not being one of the boys. When did you think you might become a writer? Always, always. I I always wrote. I kept very poor diaries, mostly when I was really upset about something. So if you would go back and read the diaries, they sounded like, you know, an anxious, depressive, you know, to someone you would never want to actually speak to. When I was when I was a teenager, I did that, too. And and and. And that it, it just depressed the hell out of me. I found writing yes. it made it worse because I just looked at this stuff and all I could see was my misery. I, 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 I couldn't see past it. Well, the writing part I enjoyed. It was then the reading experience after that I was so disillusioning because I thought, wow, like this isn't even well written and it's so pathetic. But no, I always wanted to be a writer, but I was afraid to be a writer because, you know, it's not a very financially stable thing to do with one's life. So I didn't really directly confront the fact that I wanted to be a writer until Later, later into my 20s when I started doing it in any serious way. So take me through your, your teenage years until you became a writer. Were you, so you, you, you were a little nervous about or you just thought it would, could not be a, a possible living. So what did you originally, what did you first decide you might want to do? So when I went to college, I thought that I would either work in publishing or, or or magazine publishing or book publishing, something immersed in words in that way. Or I would do what my mom did, which was be an advertising copywriter. And because she would come home and have these really fun assignments, like for Chiquita Banana, where she'd come up with these very punny things like, it's banana appeal. And, you know, she would brainstorm like 20 things like that. And I thought, well, I could do that. And I had little forays where I thought at a certain point, I really wanted to get a PhD in history, which is what I studied in college. And I went to speak to my advisor and he said, you know, where do you think you would end up if you end, you know, if you studied history? And part of the reason he was so skeptical is that I wanted to study a very basic kind of history that was extremely unfashionable at the time, like political history, social history, history of the world wars and the between, you know, the interwar years. There was no ism attached to what I wanted to study and how I wanted to approach it. Essentially, I just wanted to learn more about that period. And I wasn't really focused. And, you know, I didn't embrace postmodernism or feminism or Marxism or some kind of exciting way of examining historical events. And he said, if you think that you're going to end up somewhere like Brown, 
let me dispel that illusion before you sink you know, tens of thousands of dollars into this, because you will end up not only at the University of, you know, Kansas, but like at like the, you know, a tiny little offshoot campus of of the University of Kansas. So unless you want to be there, and it looks to me like you want to be in New York or somewhere like that, don't bother. And because, because the kind of history you're interested in, was sort of classical understanding of history, um, yes. narrative history, yes. driven also by human beings, and it did not have some structural analysis of the entire world to, to, to base it. Right. And so of what use could that possibly be? So, you know, I'm actually grateful that he told me that and saved me the time and effort because I think I would not have survived in academia and, you know, not in academia in 2023 and probably not in academia in, you know, in the 90s when I went to college. So my now my retirement plan is maybe I'll go, maybe things will be better then and I'll go and get my quietly get my PhD or just read a lot of history books on my own. So I had that little brief idea, and there was a time where I thought I would work for the UN, but I didn't want to go and get a master's in anything. And, and at that time, I was told, you need a master's in something. And I, the, the cheapest, easiest master's to get was business school. So I applied, I got in, and then I just thought, I don't want to be thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars in debt. So in any case, I went into college thinking, copywriter, or I will be a work in publishing somehow. And then when it came to senior year, when I was graduating, I had all of these interviews on campus at various publishing houses and, and magazines. And, you know, the starting salary at the time for publishing at FSG, they paid 14500 and the good places paid seventeen or 18000 At that stage in my life, I had no home to go to. Both my parents lived in apartments in the city at that point without a bedroom for me. So I couldn't live at home the way, you know, kids do nowadays. And I just thought there's absolutely no way that I could financially make this work. So I was looking at jobs in advertising and marketing, and I remember being in an interview with Quaker Oats, the big you know food conglomerate, and I was interviewing for a marketing job. And I was saying, and it was like I saw myself like a bird's eye view, like from the ceiling. What I was saying to the interviewer was, I really like Captain Crunch, but only when it has crunch berries because you sort of need the tart to kind of cut the like overwhelming sweetness of the base cereal. And he just interrupted me and he said, many of us here at Quaker Oats enjoy, you know, Captain Crunch cereal, but really, why do you want to work at Quaker Oats? And I just thought, I don't. I don't want to work here. I'm very sorry <laughs> for wasting happened, your time. That happened right in the middle of the interview? In the middle of the interview. Oh, I realize I'm, I don't want to be to have this yeah, at all. Yeah, Excuse no, me. I know. And no amount of, of, of free Captain Crunch could possibly make me want to do this for a living. And I walked out because I just had this sudden, you know, epiphany. Like, really? Is this why I've gone to four years at an Ivy League college, studied history, and, and had all these ambitions, like, to end up working, you know, at Quaker Oats in Chicago? Like, no, I, I don't want to do that. And then I thought, well, if I came into college wanting to do these two things and I'm leaving college wanting to do these same two things, maybe I haven't learned anything here at all. So I had a kind of like, <laughs> I don't know, brief insanity or epiphany where I decided that 
you know, maybe I was only choosing from options A through E and I didn't know what F through Z were. And I made this decision to do something that I would possibly hate. That was the first, the first ground rule is I want to do something that I think I might really hate. And I'm going to go to a country where I have never been, that I will possibly, where I'll possibly be very unhappy. And I want to go somewhere where nothing I do in my normal course of daily life is doable. I don't want to be able to wake up, make a cup of coffee and read the New York Times. I want to go somewhere where I'm a, you know, I'm a religious minority. I'm an ethnic minority where I have no contacts, no jobs, no friends, nothing. And I narrowed it down to four countries at the time. And then I also made a ground rule like and no major capital cities because that would be too much like New York. And I ended up moving to Chiang Mai in northern Thailand for a year. I didn't know it was going to be a year. I thought it could be much longer. And it, it, it was going to be longer, but for various reasons, it wasn't. It, it didn't end up being that. But that was probably the best decision that I've ever made in my life. And and it's a decision I would urge people to do today, although you really couldn't do it now the way that I did it in 1993 because of the Internet. You know, I went there. I had no contact with anyone. I did not have a mailbox. I had a P.O. box that was like a 20 minute motorcycle ride away from where I was living on a little a fruit orchard outside of town. And I did not have a phone line. I didn't have a landline. I used to go next door to a neighbor who had a landline. And my parents would call once every two weeks because long distance calls were expensive. And I was basically out of touch with everything that I had known. I studied Thai and I, I managed to get some jobs there and do some studying and, and travel around a bit. So was it really just a life experience year that you decided to take? It was a life experience. Yeah, but it wasn't, I, you know, I didn't define it as a year. I just thought it open-ended. I'm buying a one-way ticket. We'll see what happens. And I, I probably would have stayed longer. I in, actually intended to move then to Hong Kong. I thought it'd be really interesting to live in Hong Kong during the changeover. And I had spent six weeks backpacking through China by myself. This was in 94. And I had a budget of $15 a day. So it was like very, like, not fancy traveling, mostly in the Uyghur Autonomous Region, you know, in, in Xinjiang province, which of course now is not a place that one would go willingly or even could. And it was so exhausting, although it was fascinating, it was so exhausting that I came home to take a little break and again, pre-internet, I had to drive up to career services in Providence to see if there were any alumni contacts that I could get in touch with in Hong Kong, because I thought Hong Kong's not really the place where, you know, you can find a place to live for $40 a month, which was what my rent was in, in Chiang Mai. Um, I, I'm going to need a real job there, so I better sort of do my homework. And when I went up to that career services office in Providence, a fax, it's just all old tech here, a fax came in and it was from Scholastic, the children's publishing company. And I thought, well, if I were going to stay in New York, like this is the kind of thing that I would want to do. And it, unlike the publishing com jobs that were available when I graduated, it paid the kingly sum of $24,000 a year. And so I thought I could potentially actually afford to take this job. So I figured I'll just apply. Anyway, short 
end of the you know story, I ended up working at Scholastic. But the lesson of Thailand, um, which then really helped dictate other parts of my career, was um, that you can pick up and leave at any time. I had thought um, that life was this kind of you know linear trajectory, and that if I stepped off. I would be three squares behind, you know, everyone else who was, you know, uh, who had started with me. And it would take years of scrambling to somehow then catch up. And so that was a real lesson. And a few years later, I ended up moving to London, quitting my job and moving to London on sort of the spur of the moment. And I would never have done that. I would have never dared do that if I hadn't first gone to Thailand and realized like life goes on and you can, you know, you can get back to wherever you were and it's no loss and probably a gain. Well, one thing I always tell interns and, and anybody who asks me is foolish enough to ask me for some advice in college or something. And my general view is in your 20s, you can't make a mistake. Just try things. Go places that you're not comfortable with. Try things out. You do have time. It, you figure it out. Better, better to figure it out at the end of your 20s and get somewhere real than lock yourself in the early 20s to something you don't really like. So don't be too afraid to go around. Them. What I, I'm fascinated about your time in Chiang Mai and when you're talking, is this freedom from technology that, that has actually been a theme in your work. And certainly the, the inability to talk to people or to contact people from your home was essentially part of what it meant to go abroad or to go yeah. to a different country. And yeah. when I first came to America, I didn't have any, my parents would write letters and they weren't going to afford the phone calls. There was no internet. And I would go to the out of town news at Harvard Square to get the look at the British newspapers like two days later, three days later to see what was going on. And now, of course, it's utterly different. And even when I first started writing, about America for English publications, I had to do a huge amount of translation. I had to do a huge amount of just basics of what's happening here in order to set up whatever I wanted, opinion I wanted to make. Now, it's all the same in the English-speaking yeah. world. The media that they're consuming in London is not that dissimilar from the media they're consuming in San Francisco or in, or in in, in, in Washington or in Paris. Uh, it's, 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 it's ended the ability to get somewhere you can't be reached. Right. But also, I mean, and I'm not 100% anti-tech. I'm like 93% anti-tech. I do think there are some good things about it. But there are things that we have lost that are irretrievable. And one of those, even if you don't bring your phone, right, it's just there is the internet is everywhere and you are accessible. And even if you don't bring the phone, right, you you know that the phone could be there or it's a very deliberate decision and it probably weighs on you and is quite fact, you know, often quite difficult to do. But when you're away from your phone, it's not just that nobody can reach you, but also you can't reach anyone and you're forced to really reckon both with the world outside you, you know, you, you interact so much more with with strangers on buses, you know, in, in towns, you really you don't have Google Translate, you have to figure out a way to communicate. I, had, I was traveling in China, for example, with a five year old lonely planet that still had prices in FEC, you know, the old currency that was just for foreigners. And and it had a tiny little glossary, you know, in the back. 
But I was in Xinjiang province where everything was in an Arabic script and nobody, you know, people didn't all speak Mandarin there. And you just had to get by. You had to figure out how to engage with the outside world. And you really had no way of escaping it. And if you did escape the outside world, well, then it was all internal. So you were really thinking about things. And, you know, people say to me now, like, that must have been hard. And I'm like, yes. And that's why that's a large part why it was so good for me, because it was really hard. It was challenging. And how often do you really get challenged in that kind of way in the sort of lives that we lead right now? And also without the phone, you're just, your eyes see things that they would not otherwise see. Every, for me, one of the revelations in tech was the realization after about 10 years of blogging really, and, and being there at the very beginning of it was that I always had the assumption that that what I was doing online was on top of what I did in my real life. What I didn't realize that it was taking, it was actually instead of my real life. There are only so many hours you have in the day. Right. And if your attention is one place, it's not somewhere else. And so what also happens is that you lose a sense of place. You lose a sense of your near environment. I can go back to my hometown, for example, where I never had internet growing up. I still know my way around. I know the streets. I know know what it'll turn around in that corner. And they're still there to some extent. And I don't need any map of any kind. And I learned, as you do that, you learn it'll, you notice certain things about where you live that, that become the basis for your future understanding. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've done very deliberately, and, you know, it seems crazy to people, but I have never Googled anywhere that I lived in Thailand, not the restaurants I ate in the cafes, not the street I lived on. I have never Googled. I spent a month in Vietnam at the time, several weeks in Cambodia, and, you know, it was in China, and I have never Googled any of it ever because I have such a strong you know, full sensory memory of what it was. And if I see something else, it's going to then substitute that memory, that those memories that are there. And I remember seeing, I don't know, some James Bond movie that came out like probably like five or 10 years ago. And, you know, with all kinds of special effects, but there was one scene where they showed the Bund in Shanghai. And I thought that's the fucking craziest thing I've seen in this entire movie. Because when I was at the Bund, there was like one you know, high rise building in Shanghai and, and it's just unrecognizable. Yeah. So you actually get a real sense of also how things change. Um, yes. And also, of course, places are complicated. They are, they're deep. They, they contain all sorts of social relations and dynamics and rituals and practices that if you are not really with your eyes peeled, you'll miss it altogether. You, you yeah. will not see the world that you're in. And in some ways, it's, I, I realize it, it's somehow more risky now, more dangerous 
to leave that phone behind than to have it with you, I think. Yeah. I mean, and I think, too, I mean, you're someone who lives in a country that isn't the country of your birth. I really think that many Americans would strongly benefit from living somewhere else to have that perspective and ideally at least one other place, because if you do just two, then it's always a kind of binary, you know, well, this is that way and, and this is the other and you don't even think about a third possible way. But you can't fully absorb what that experience is like if you are constantly in touch with your old, you know, your your sort of former place of residence. It kind of requires that that total immersive experience to really get that. But it's always there at the back of your mind that this is not what you were used to. That this is different. Yeah. And and sometimes I I sort of think obviously I I remember I got into this horrible TV spat with John Stewart and one of the things that he said was that I, I, I didn't understand racism in America because I didn't grow up here. I didn't know. And I will, I totally take that point that there are some things that, especially when you're talking about something like that, which is a kind of dark family secret that, that, that is not instantly accessible to outsiders, but you can miss things. On the other hand, if you've only ever known this place, you can also miss some things about that, which right. means that maybe you are all up in your own Kool-Aid in a way you don't really need to be. Maybe you are trapped in this historical loop that you actually need to break out of. And in fact, right. you are doing better than you think you are and actually being from somewhere else who has some understanding of how other countries might integrate different races or different cultures, you're doing a fucking amazing job. And, and, but Americans feel terrible about it. And, yeah. and, 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 and so I mean, it's, sometimes being an outsider is really well, helpful. I mean, it's crazy because, you know, some of those same people who levied the, you know, leveled those critiques are the ones who say, well, de Tocqueville wrote the best book on America. You know, well, exactly, because it's not really that you can't understand something if you're an outsider. It's that you understand differently. And everything, you know, any point of view is just as blinkered as it is informed by whatever one's own way of looking at things is. And that, you know, that goes for for any political issue. It goes for literature. It goes for travel. It goes for, I mean, why do we read travel literature? Of course, many people don't anymore. But the whole reason to read it is that you're getting a perspective that's coming from the outside and is seeing things a little bit differently than, than the people who've lived there all their lives. What has tech done to writing, to books? How has it uh, affected the life of letters. I mean, you, you're in a position to sort of uh, really see that. And and what has been your experience the last, let's talk about 25 years, because it's roughly 25 years uh, that we've been dealing with this, although the last 15 have probably been more intense. But what's your impressions of as to how it has affected writing and the writing of books? Well, okay, I'm going to say something jolly about technology, which I think as a writer, you know, just the basics. I mean, you, you, you've you worked with a typewriter, you've worked probably longhand, or even with like a really early, you know, I had like a brother word processor in college where you could see like a tiny little line of script on a teeny weeny screen. And so as a writer, the tools are fantastic. I mean, that's inarguable. And I know some people, you know, Bob Carer, of course, is the most, you know, notable 
person who says, well, you know, writing things slowly, it forces you to think and slow things down. I don't know. For me, I find how slow and unpracticed I am with a basic thing like handwriting at this point, which is, you know, a fallout of technology is very frustrating as a writer. I love the fact that having taken typing in, in high school, I can touch type and and I can move things. And I actually think that that all is to the good. If you're talking about technology in terms of its impact on the publishing industry, its impact on the business of journalism, its impact with regard specifically to social media. I think like there, the picture is much more complicated. I think that we, you know, in all of those fields, I think in publishing and journalism, I think that we tend to mistake what happens on social media as, for, you know, as some kind of indicator of reality when really it's like, let's take many of the craziest people who we would avoid if we saw them walking down the street, give them a megaphone and allow them to dictate the sort of discourse on, and that's social media. And no matter how many times people say, you know, in these organizations, like Twitter isn't, you know, Twitter isn't real life. We know that Twitter isn't the real world. Like part of them still doesn't fully accept that. Well, if you, um, if you live in it, yeah. Whether you like it or not, it's your real world. Right. I mean, that's right. the thing. It becomes real. It creates an atmosphere. I agree with you. I think that the word processing is for a writer to be to be go over and just move a paragraph around to 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 write a horrible sentence and just zip it out as soon yeah. as you write it. These are these were huge advances. I actually found writing and rewriting obviously much easier in a word processor because the rewrite was so much simpler. You weren't scribbling on top of things you'd already scribbled down and put right. in a little, it was a complicated mess when you went over your first draft in the past. But yeah, so I, I do think that's true. But obviously for me, the big impact has been the shortening of your average attention span in terms of the written word in as much as what, what tech did was really make it much more familiar to people to read things in very short bursts. Yes. And so, and they would then become addicted in many ways. I, I'm, they, we, would then become <laughs> addicted in many ways to that. Those other poor people that. <laughs> those other <laughs> poor, miserable people with who don't have inferior minds. <laughs> yeah. No, we all, we're all su su subject to this. And so the ability to really read. Yes. A long novel or to read a serious nonfiction book and take your time with it in a way. And you you've just developed this fidget. You just you, you just yeah. it, there's something that you can't even now when I'm reading like a book, I will find after a chapter, I will check my phone. Yeah. Well, I mean, it several things. And I've obviously written a lot about this, um, especially with with how to raise a reader. Um, but, you know, you have to think like if we adults who came of age and had decades of being off, you know, not having phones are having this this much trouble paying attention to a long narrative, even though our brains were wired in a pre-internet era, like what is this doing to kids? And people say like, oh, you know, kids can't, kids can't read. I, what is shocking to me is I've been going to you know, some universities recently and professors have essentially 
like all but stopped assigning books. And if they do, they assign them with the knowledge that very few people will actually read them. And that is and, and at top universities. And that's incredibly depressing. So what are they assigning instead? I mean, in it depends on obviously the age, but in high schools, they're often assigning, you know, really short, really easy books, a lot of which is like what kids should ostensibly be reading on their own free time, things that aren't necessarily as challenging and a lot of excerpts. And, you know, there there was a piece recently in The New Yorker, now not so recently, but I, I wrote a column after it about the decline of English and the humanities in and in, in you know, in college in America, although I think it's happening elsewhere as well, which is really upsetting and depressing to me. And, and you know, I can see it because at Brown, for example, where I went, you know, history and English were the most popular majors when I was there. And now computer science, which wasn't even offered, is the most popular major. But I think the problem starts earlier than that because of changes in the curriculum in the U.S. to emphasize nonfiction and also this kind of like deep textual analysis of reading, this close reading that essentially all but destroys any joy or pleasure from the process of reading. And if you're going to do that with kids who already don't read, then what you give them are excerpts or poems, unfortunately, not even, in my opinion, good poems. But it it, it is essentially taught in a way that I think destroys any appreciation or love of literature. But the humanities, as we've understood them, or as our generation understood them, as we are essentially in the process of being abolished, because for ideological reasons, because the whole concept of a human, which is a universal concept in which anybody can understand any other human and that they communicate in writing, and you can reach across eons of time, you can reach across continents of distance, and there is still this thing, this story, this argument, this this way of expressing yourself that can be understood by any other human being. That is under such massive assault from ideological positions, especially, obviously, the left, which denies, at this point, any kind of universalism of that kind, which, which has moved towards standpoint epistemology, which believe right. that cultures cannot communicate between themselves, that that actually focuses less on narrative and the individual writer and a point of view than on structural factors such as economics, society, or the other constructs that they've developed in, 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 in post-war, post-modern critical theory. Yeah. If I had been forced to read literature like that, I would have hated it. Yeah. I would have, I, I, it would have just killed. If I'd, if I'd been forced, and I did history at Oxford, and mercifully at that point, we were not yet captured. So I would actually be able to read really interesting narrative history yeah, uh, and, and understand it. And I mean, it wasn't the only thing we'd read because there would be other ways of approaching certain periods in history but, and original sources. This, is, this has been, see, what, it mean, what, it, what, what makes me concerned is that it really will lead to and we're only beginning to see this in its full, the end of reading right. as a pastime, the end of writing as a way of actually communicating one person's view of the world to another. These are, these are, these are constructs out of a liberal society. They yeah. cannot exist outside of that. 
Well, I think, you know, what happened is it sort of it started in the social sciences and a little bit in kind of media studies. And so, you know, it was sort of you, you first saw this stuff in sociology and in, you know, semiotics classes and in even in the difference between political science and history, which I always, you know, was more inclined towards history, because, of course, with political science, you have the framework and then you kind of find the, the facts to, to, to fit the framework, whereas with history, in my view, you know, you're actually reading the facts and then you come up with an interpretation. And then it went through the humanities and then now is going to the sciences, which is also, I, I don't know what's more terrifying, but when I was in college, I remember that at that time, it wasn't so overtly about kind of stand standpoint theory and although it was getting there, but what it was, was the, the threat to me was about criticizing various things before you actually had read the thing itself. And that's why I never took a class with some kind of isterism in the in the, you know, class description or title because I thought, well, if you're going to criticize English literature, then you should actually read it first. And, you know, so the first, you know, semester I was there, I took English literature survey, which is now not even authored anymore. And I think it's probably not offered because in part, um, I mean, there are several reasons, but one is that kind of, you know, if you if you offer a class in the survey of English literature, it's all old dead white guys. That's all it is. There's no way to mess around with that. That's what it is, which I think, again, is fine. That's what that was. And you can read other things in other classes. But the effort to try to then say, well, let's, you know, let's we, we can't have a curriculum like this. Well, then you can't teach it at all. Yeah, I, I for me, one of the classic examples, this was Reed College, which had this amazing Humanities 101 course, which was, it was a hippy-dippy college. Everyone does drugs. Everyone, it's the most freewheeling, but it had this scholarly integrity at its core that it, that it stuck, stood by. And, mm -hmm. and many of its alumni absolutely so thrilled to have gone through it and, and feel like they've really understood the world better through it. It's being destroyed because of all those things, because somehow the whiteness of an author is the most important element to them, or the sex yeah. of the author is the most important element to it. What they're actually doing seems seems irrelevant in a way. Right. Because of course it is from their point of view. Of course it is. If everything is a structure and systems and everything is oppression, then all that we have to do is note which is oppressing and which is not. And right. that's the end of our discussion. Right. And then also, I mean, two things. One is, you know, and then the oppressed are the good and the oppressor is the bad, which of course, you know, just because you're oppressed doesn't make you good. But the... I wonder if what's happened these last few weeks in Israel, Palestine, and when you've witnessed the response, the intuitive, instinctive, mm -hmm. immediate response. I mean, it wasn't so much now. It was, for me, what was shocking was that there was absolutely no template for students at the highest universities in this country to understand what had happened with the Hamas attack right. on, on, on civilians in, in southern Israel outside of the fact that the the oppressors were being beaten and the oppressed were standing up and therefore we know which side we're on that right. was it 
Right. And, and, and a total lack of understanding of the history. I mean, the, the number of places and uh, open letters that refer to Gaza as, as occupied territory when, in fact, Israel withdrew, you know, it's astonishing. So you, you have a lack of factual knowledge about the region. But then also this, you know, this you very... You need it, do you? you right. You don't need well, it. It's like there's this homogenization. I mean, you know, I have never been to the Middle East, and it's not my area of expertise. So I don't want to say you, more you, than I'm married to Brett Stevens. You never went to the Middle East. That is a, <laughs> that is heroic achievement, Pamela. Yeah, no, I've never been there. I actually just we just got tickets to go to Jordan. Whoops, for vacation next year. So I, I hope we'll still be able to to do that. But but where was I? I do think that there is this, and again, it's just this extremely simplified version that, you know, oh, I was going to say I've never been there. But, you know, what you hear when you, you know, people are there is like, these are all Semitic peoples. Like, these are all peoples of the Middle East. I mean, obviously, there are many immigrants and different subgroups from Africa, from Eastern Europe, etc. But like, essentially, um, th th this is um, a group that I don't know if they're... That, I don't know that you could say one is people of color and one is not people of color. They're Ethiopian Jews. So, but in those sort of rigid, simplistic and ignorant framework that many people on what I think of as, I don't even know what to call them because to me as a liberal, they don't feel of the left. It feels almost more like a kind of orthodoxy and illiberalism on the far left, but uh, they see, you know, a certain group as being part of the, you know, the oppressed slash colonized slash people of color, sort of all the reasons why you would be more um, righteous than anyone on the other side. And so it is simply, in their eyes, a kind of replication of the George Floyd moment in a different context. Right. Uh, which is and, literally absurd. I mean, the whole, right. I mean, the whole idea that you can have this crudeness, this reductionism of this of the most abstract level and then impose that understanding on anything, regardless right. of the actual reality involved, it's, it's exactly what ideology does to the mind. It destroys the mind. And the closest analogy really is 9-11. And if you remember back in 2001, there were very few people who had anything remotely nice to say about the terrorists who attacked the United States. However, in the most mild-mannered way, when Susan Sontag and Bill Maher in different contexts each said, well, you can't say that it didn't lack a certain sort of courage, right, to fly into a building. And I'm not going to pass judgment on on that but they said that but they were immediately condemned and yet you know you see now that here is a you know unabashedly uh, inarguably a terrorist attack a brutal attack and murder of of civilians of women of children babies and that people would defend that in the name of some higher purposes just and and there's a little backlash it's true but i don't think it's as strong as i know you know some people think this is going to be a hinge moment and maybe i'm just too skeptical and pessimistic but i don't necessarily know that it is i think that what you're seeing instead is a kind of split into two different tribes and one side is saying one thing and the other is saying something else with a total lack of nuance or complexity. Hmm. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. I moving on to another. You don't want to fix the Middle East? Well, I, you know, you're not going to solve it. 
I, I've, I've tried to write as honestly as I can about it. I, I have serious criticisms of what is, how Israel has behaved the last 20 years, uh, which I think are valid. The, the, it's utterly irrelevant in the context of what happened with Hamas, which is unmistakable, just categorically among the most depraved, evil shit I've ever seen in my life. Um, it is straight out of the, the Holocaust, some of the worst parts of the Holocaust. The demonization, dehumanization of Jews that these people have been engaged in is simply awful. Uh, at the same time, I am, I really do think Israel is in danger of losing the PR war here. I think they've made some dumb-ass errors. Uh, I don't think you want to have your defense minister talking about the other side as Animals. I don't. Right. Think, no. <laughs> I don't think that the the, the forces within the, the Israeli government that really are dead on part of the settler movement and who really do are, I think, inspired by incredible amount of racism and disdain and and hatred of of Arabs have far too much yeah. power I in mean, this coalition. And I think they're going to maybe do things that they will go are going to regret. And I think the I think they they're in a moment emotionally, which I completely understand. Because this has triggered something seriously deep in their psyche. And I, I wish I could say how much I understand this. I don't fully understand it, but I can definitely stand in awe and reverence at that. But yeah. Well, but, in signing off of the Middle East, no, you were going to say, but. But killing thousands and thousands of civilians in, a, in what might be an absolutely futile attempt to get rid of Hamas and have no no plan to govern the place afterwards. Yeah. This is not smart. And it is also no. not smart to begin with your belief and intent to destroy the enemy as opposed to what would be absolutely obvious to anybody with good PR moves, which is to say, they've got our hostages. Yeah. Release them now. Put all the pressure on them. Instead, the Israelis have taken the pressure off them by by engaging what is seems to me premature and and, and maybe over the top. But look, well, you know more about this than I do. I, I will say I'm an anti-fan of, 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 of Netanyahu since the 90s. And so I think that maybe the only possible good that could come out of this on the Israeli side is besides the obvious good of hopefully those hostages returning and this ending as soon as possible is that Netanyahu loses power. Yeah, I was talking to a friend of mine the other night, a Jewish friend of mine is a very smart guy, and he said, look, the thing that's really died in the last few weeks is the, the myth of Israeli competence. Yeah. I mean, the the fact I my, my view is that these Hamas terrorists do not seem to be surprised at how easy it was for them to do what they did, that, that Netanyahu took his eye off the southern border. He and, and, and he actually has had a policy of, of shoring up Hamas because it would make the possibility of a Palestinian state less feasible for him, which is all he cares about. And so but again, there was that position. Is which is really hard to sustain in our current culture. It's in our in our in our current politics. My own view about it being possibly a hinge moment is simply this: that many progressives. Hi there. This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the Dishcast. You'll be able to add it to your Dishcast feed and never have this hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. 
If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe. <laughs>